Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the 502nd episode of the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and for those of you tuning in, this episode is being recorded in front of an audience at the Carlo Vivari International Film Festival in the Czech Republic. My guest today is in town to receive the festival's President's Award. She is a tremendously gifted American actress and director who has been in the business for 40 years, with credits including the instant classic films The Princess Bride and Forrest Gump, the TV series that helped to launch Netflix and the streaming era, House of Cards, and a host of smaller projects that reflect her fiercely independent spirit. Now 57, she has to her name eight Primetime Emmy Award nominations, 10 Screen Actors Guild Award nominations, and four Golden Globe Award nominations, one resulting in a win that made her the first ever Golden Globe winner for acting on a program from a streaming service. More importantly to her, I know, is the fact that she has the respect and admiration of her peers. Indeed, a great many of those who haven't worked with her say they want to, and virtually all of those who have worked with her gush about the experience. Take as just one example Jodie Foster, a fellow actress-director, who directed her in several episodes of House of Cards, and who recently said, quote, she's an amazing actress, one of the best we've got, close quote. I can't wait to speak with her about her journey to and through the business. It's a rare opportunity, as I know she generally doesn't love talking about herself in front of lots of people. So that being the case, would you please join me in giving a very warm Carlo Vivari welcome to Ms. Robin Wright. Thank you again for being here and doing this. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, They're going to get this out of their system for a minute, the photos, and then we'll start. Just going to open this. Click, click. Click, click. (laughs) Not, no, no, that was a few few days ago. All right. Um, Robin, can we start at the very, very beginning? Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Um, I was born in Dallas, Texas, and my father sold pharmaceuticals to doctors, um, traveling salesmen, and my mother basically was one of the first five women that started Mary Kay Cosmetics. Very successfully, I've read. Um, Now, before modeling, before acting, before anything else, there was dance. And you have said that it was pretty serious, and then it kind of got swiped out from from under you. Is that right? Yeah, I think I started dancing when I was about 12 or 13. And then, you know, I was with a group, and then that group moves up to more of the professional. And I really had this dream of moving to New York City and dancing on stage. I thought, oh, I want to be in the chorus line. And, <laughs> and then my parents decided to move from Los Angeles, which is where some of the great dance studios were. And we moved to... Hello. <laughs> what a great sound. We moved to uh, La Jolla, which is in San Diego, and there was no good dance. So then I just started going to the disco. <laughs> Moving. <laughs> now, in a weird way, that kind of connects the dots, I guess, to the beginning of modeling, right? Because what were you doing when you were first, somebody first raised the idea, wait a minute, you might be a, a good modeling candidate? Well, truthfully, I, I just think he was a pervert. Um, <laughs> it was a photographer who happened to be outside the dance class. And these were the days when you truly wore the bathing suit, leotard, with no tights, but you had leg warmers. So it was very sexy. <laughs> and I think the teacher just made us do that so, you know, oh, they could look. Anyway, he brought a photographer to shoot us. And this guy said, hey, I will give you copies of the pictures and you'll create a book. You should model. So I had these goofy dance pictures of you know, doing arabesque and plies. And, the, and I took it into a modeling agency, and they said, you're a fool. You're never going to get a job. 
with these pictures. Anyway, that's when I got signed, and they were like, we're, we're going to do this for real. Now, like a lot of people, graduated high school and wanted to see the world, right? Uh, pretty quickly, go off to Europe. And what was, uh, what was sort of awaiting you there when you, when you got there? Because I guess that was the next, maybe the first time you were properly paid to do some modeling, right? Yeah, that's true. I mean, what was waiting for me in Europe was, I don't ever want to go back to America. Um, and I still feel that today, uh, every time I'm over here. <laughs> I just connected more with the lifestyle and the people and was always a Francophile. And I wanted to stay in Paris. And the only way I could stay, because I ran out of money, um, was model. And I got signed with Perry Planning and got to see so much of the world on jobs. Because I, I'm so short, I could only do um, certain editorial, so it was mostly lingerie and bathing suits. I couldn't do the catwalk, right? Um, so you got to go to the Mauritius and Munich and you know Tanzania to shoot these amazing photo, photo sessions, and you would only work from like seven to nine in the morning because it was always too hot after that in some of these places in Africa. And, but really got to travel and see culture, you know, at 17. Unfortunately, like, like more than, uh, like, like quite a few um, young women in that field, you also saw some of the bad ways that women are treated in that business and also, I guess, in, in any kind of, probably unfortunately any kind of business, but it was, I mean, you've talked about one incident that really was, I guess, a bit scarring in the sense that it, it just made you realize that you're, you, you can be a, treated like a commodity, right? Or a piece of, piece of meat, right? I mean, can you just, only, not to kind of make you talk about something that was unpleasant, but only because I think it, it maybe shapes the way you've approached Hollywood as well. Can you just talk about what, do you know which one I'm referring to? This yeah. one? If you don't mind, just so people have an idea of what kind of BS. You were seven, 17, 18 when this is? 17. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times you had to go into the room, so the photographer was there and the editor of the magazine. And being in France, topless is the norm. So I had no idea. Nobody prepared me, and I came in, and it was a very, very famous photographer. Uh, don't need to name his name, but anyway. Just died. Came in, and he goes, take off your top. I'm like, okay, take the top off. Take the bra off. Take the bra off. And he goes, her tits are too small. Need the next one. <laughs> and at 17, you're just, I just walked around like this for 30 years, you know, oh, just geez. completely. And... Yeah, I mean, I see why with social media that is basically taken over that, where everybody's a judge and there's so much bullying and the critique is so heavy, right? You, like, you're never going to be perfect. There's always going to be something wrong. But that was 1983. So it hasn't changed much, is my point. Right. <laughs> um the move into acting was pretty, from your point of view, I think pretty unexpected, right? Because, I mean, there was a funny conversation you'd had with, I think, Francis Ford Coppola for Interview Magazine years ago where you were telling the story about how very accidentally you were exposed at a young age to some movies that you probably shouldn't have seen at that young an age, and it didn't make acting seem that appealing, and yet it, acting did come back around because of was it the, the person who was representing you as an agent in modeling as well said maybe start to move into this? It was. A, I was at a modeling agency in Los Angeles prior to going to Paris. Um, and there was this theatrical agent, other division, came over and just said, you have any interest in trying acting? And I was like, no way. Oh, my God. I would be so petrified to be in front of a camera. Um, and she said, the only difference is you're talking. <laughs> where, where you're not talking when you're modeling. And I was like, oh, yeah, you got a point. Um, 
And she said, and also I'm an acting coach and my husband is a voice coach. And being from Texas, I had a little bit of a twang still. And she's like, we need to get rid of that. Um, and we need to teach you how to sit poised and, and I'm going to direct you in scenes and then we're going to go on auditions. She drove me to my audition. She groomed me. She was an amazing agent. She was the agent who discovered Christina Applegate. And I was her next client. So can I just add, so this is Eileen Farrell. Why did she, why do you think she took such an interest that she just saw something that you didn't even see at that point, right? I guess so. I mean, it's, you know, you got something. That's the line. You got something. Yeah. Uh, Maybe. Now, didn't, Everybody wants to uh, make these stories seem like, and then she was a movie star, like the next thing. Uh, there were a few frustrating years of auditions not really working out, right? Including for some movies that people know, right? Yeah. You've said like pretty much the John Hughes repertoire. Uh, Every single John <laughs> Hughes movie that I never got a part in, that one, yeah. Um, I would get called back three to five times. And, you know, you go from casting director's assistant to the casting director to the producer to the director. And you think, oh, I'm going to get something, right? I'll get one. Never got any of them. Molly Ringwald got every single. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'm, it was two years of this. Getting your hopes up, getting your hopes up, and then being disappointed. And then I was cleaning houses to make money. And I was like, you know what? I'm out of here. I'm out of L.A., I'm going to move to Hawaii and I'm going to work on a boat. And I did that. I moved to Hawaii. And the minute I landed, I got a call from Eileen Farrell saying, you got the part on Santa Barbara. (laughs) So I had to fly back. And then that was four years. That was two years that turned into four-year contract. So let's just, for anyone who doesn't know, this was a soap opera ran on NBC. You were playing... And I know you don't want to talk about this subject too much because it wasn't your favorite project, but just this is a rich daddy's girl, Kelly Capwell, whose love interests include, as noted in another article, quote, a serial killer, her sister's ex-lover and his identical twin brother, her sister's ex-husband and her mother's lover. Close quote. We could keep going. 538 episodes. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because a lot of our Best actors and actresses started or were early on in, involved with soaps. They don't necessarily uh, ever want to go, go back to them, but there, there's, I know there's some probably learning value in it, but you, you really hated it, right? It was not a fun... <laughs> I, yeah, because really the worst part about it was we shot in NBC Studios on a stage and you never saw daylight for... 16 hours of the day because there were no windows. That was the hardest. Um, Of course, I hated it then, but I look back and I go, that was my training. We worked with three cameras at all times, so you had to have really quick periphery to know when that red light came on, that's when you turned this way to speak to the actor, you know, and then middle light would come on and you'd... um, And we had to memorize anywhere from 10 to 20 pages of dialogue a day and sometimes we would get the last-minute rewrites in the makeup chair at 5.30 in the morning. So you had to memorize new paragraphs. There were deletions. It, it, was, it was like going into the army of television. Yeah. yeah. Um, in the midst of this four-year period there, uh, you hear about, the, at some point, they're, they're going to make, Rob Reiner's going to direct a film version of William Goldman's fairy tale, <laughs> The Princess Bride. You had only appeared in one film before. It was not uh, one that you or many people choose to, <laughs> to remember that much. Um, they had apparently seen a lot of other people by the time you came to their attention. Um, what do you remember about how that casting process went down that ends up with you playing, as people will get to see uh, again soon here, I think, Buttercup, this young lady who is pursued by a farmhand in this film. How did it, how did it go down? I truly think um, Rob Reiner, the director, was so exhausted because he had auditioned 250 actors. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I think by the time I walked in, he was just like, just give it to her. Let's just, let's just shoot this movie. Um, I, I think I got it. My, my mother married a British man when I was about 9, 11. Um, and he made sure that I perfected my British accent. If he was going to be under that roof, right? And turn me on to Monty Python and the Holy Grail and blah, blah, blah. And so I think I got it because I could do the British accent. <laughs> and that was a dream come true, that movie. Because the first movie I did just prior to that, <laughs> this is good on the resume, <laughs> I played a 16-year-old heroin addict hooker. <laughs> Runaway. Good. Go strong. <laughs> Quite a different part. Um, and in this case, I'll just say that William Goldman, when I guess, I don't know if they had formally cast you or if this was part of that process, but I guess that you guys go over to introduce yourself to William Goldman as well. And apparently his reaction when he saw you was, well, that's what I wrote. Like, that was... Aww, uh, I've never heard that. No, that's I, so sweet. It was cool. Um, okay, so you're 21 when that movie's released. Contrary to popular memory, I think... It was not a big blockbuster. It took till it was on VHS for people to really catch up with it properly. Um, but for you, I mean, still, suddenly you're on a lot more people's radar than before. And yet, it was not really possible for you to capitalize on that because Santa Barbara, you were, you were still stuck working on Santa Barbara, right? In fact, did they add on the time they'd let you out to go do that movie, now you got to be there that much longer on Santa Barbara. Well, think about this math. I was on the show, contracted to do two years, and I got Princess Bride about a year and a half in, and I was going to be gone for four months shooting in England. And they said, okay, we've calculated that basically for every week that you're gone, we're tacking on two months. So it ended up being another two years because I was gone. So they killed my character in the show. She dies, mysteriously. And then when I came back from Princess Bride, suddenly she was alive. <laughs> they just found her, alive. <laughs> Naturally. Um, so I imagine, though, at that time for you, on the basis of Princess Bride, you were probably getting a lot more outreach from the industry, and, and it was just was it tough to have to say, like, I'm sorry, I can't. I don't remember. Th- what do you know that I don't know? No, I don't know. I'm just that. I don't. Uh, was I wasn't that- getting offers. No, no way. That's I think. Crazy. It, I think it. Like you said, it yeah. was wasn't until it generated some more traction. The uh, movie. It wasn't a hit, and now it's one of the most iconic films yeah. in in our country. I don't know about totally here, but so once your time. <laughs> It sounds like a, like a prison sentence. Once your sentence on Santa Barbara was over, um, there were a number of projects that you have said you passed on because you were at that same time starting your family. And not, uh, you, you certainly don't say it in a way like, oh, I wish, I wish I'd done these instead of started my family. But just to note, and correct me f- just for the record if any of these are incorrect, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves... Jurassic Park, The Firm, Batman Forever, English Patient. Does those sound right? English Patient, I didn't get. Okay. Really, because I found out I was pregnant with my second child, and I really wanted that one. Um, so that was just a biological thing. Fair enough. But yeah, the, all those. <laughs> was there also something <laughs> with Born on the Fourth of July, Oliver Stone? Yep, that was a nightmare meeting. Um, <laughs> There's been a couple of those. Just weird people. Like just Ridley Scott, you know, gr- <laughs> these great filmmakers. They don't yeah. like women. They just, <laughs> they just don't. Ooh. Yeah. You, you felt like it, it was just contentious or, or combative or something? I have a very funny story about Oliver Stone. <laughs> so he flies me to meet Tom Cruise, who is shooting Rain Man. In Las Vegas. You're going to come to set. He used to talk to me like that. He goes, you're going to come to set and uh, we're going we're gonna to have a little chit-chat about whether you're right for this part. And I'm like, okay. 
we land, I land, and I get ushered to a helicopter. And he's in the helicopter. And we are flying to the empty, open desert where they're shooting a scene. And you've got the thing on, and you can't hear, and the thing's going. And I'm trying to make small talk with him. And I said something about what was your position, because I knew he was in Vietnam. And I knew he knew how to fly, but I just wanted to know what exactly was his title. And I said, what was your title he goes, in Vietnam? And he goes, it's NAM. <laughs> <laughs> and from then on, he just he had no respect for me because I didn't pronounce Vietnam, Vietnam. <laughs> so I didn't get the part. Sounds like it might have been for the best. Uh, um, now, around that time, you did your... Well, so... You meet someone who you would be uh, personally and professionally involved with for a number of projects, Sean Penn. But in fact, it was not State of Grace. That was, that's the first one that came out, right? This is 1990. But y- there was an earlier project that got kind of aborted, right? That you, or for oh, yeah. him, what was, I think at one point they're calling it Loon, but we now know it as Denial. This that's is right. 88. Um, did you, I guess, just talk about how we wind up in State of Grace with you playing the sister of a mobster who falls in love with an undercover cop. So you're, you're kind of caught between Gary Oldman and Sean Penn's character. Phil Juanu. Is that a familiar name? No. You know him, Sandy. Um, he made this great first movie, and the studio said, we're going to put the faith in him, and he's going to make this great. And Ed Harris was in it. So I was with these three bigwigs, real veterans, and I was scared out of my mind playing this part. But Sean and I had met, like you say, years before. He was supposed to do a movie with me that was this crazy great love story. Um, (laughs) And the truth is, I guess he was with Madonna at the time, and she read the script and said, I don't know who's playing this role, but whoever plays it, you're going to go off and have an affair with her. I'm sure of it. <laughs> she was right. <laughs> he didn't end up doing the movie because right. she, she was like, if you go make that movie, you're out. You know? <laughs> so State of Grace comes out, unfortunately, at the, on the same day as Goodfellas, so probably didn't help at the box office. Um, two crime movies going up against each other. But that's 1990. Two movies more in 1992, The Playboys and Toys. And then, in that same period when you're, you know, starting your family, comes along this project, Forrest Gump, which almost could have gone the way of some of those others that, that didn't end up happening because of personal things going on in your life. Because I believe you're, you had just had your second child when that one was going into production. So before we get into you know even the production um, aspect of it, this is a movie or a project that I think Wendy Fennerman have been trying to make for years. Nobody was interested. Then Rain Man comes along and they're like, oh, we've already we think we've seen this already. Finally, it gets made, but a lot of people were pretty skeptical about it. Were you when you had it cross your radar, and then were you immediately sold on the potential of this, or did you take some convincing? Require some convincing? I loved it. I read the book, which is not as good as the movie. Um, it's just not as full, but I could see where this Back to the Future director was going to take it. And um, I don't know what you asked, but no, what just are we about how about? it. So, so for you. It was like, this is worth finding a way to make it work, even though it's at a very busy time for you personally. You saw it. You, saw it, you felt it. There, it, it. There's something that Zemeckis does also in most of his movies, is he knows how to telegraph sentimentality without being cheesy. It's really heartfelt, and it's really funny, and it's very human. And that was definitely in the screenplay. And who doesn't love Tom Hanks? I was like, come on, this is a no-brainer. But when we were shooting, um, the studio, Paramount, didn't believe in this film. So 
they cut the budget, and we really needed another $10 million to make it because there was so much CGI in it. And um, so basically what that means is that you cut all the actors' salaries oh, and get cheap crew and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and when we were shooting, it was to the point where funds were so low, Bob Zemeckis would go out during every lunch break, every single day, and on every Sunday that we had off, we were shooting six-day weeks, 16-hour days, just to get it, because they reduced budget, which means reduce the schedule. And I never got to know Tom and Bob that well, because they were out during lunch period doing the running sequences with a cameraman and a boom, and driving around whatever state we were in, um, just to get it in the can. And, uh, and then we broke the box office of Star Wars, I think, our first weekend. I think we topped them, $150 million our first weekend or something. When you look back at that film, is there a scene that you are proudest of or happiest with personally, just of your own work in that one? Probably when I'm snorting lines of cocaine and try to jump off the balcony. That was so much fun. <laughs> Just to, you know, go back to that time period and wear those clothes. Right. That was a hoot. <laughs> so as you say, movie opens, grosses hundreds of millions of dollars. You get nominated for Golden Globe and SAG Awards. The film, Bob and Tom, and I think Eric Roth, all win Oscars. On, so on the one hand, again, now, I, I, or I guess maybe for the first time, because you said it didn't really happen with Princess Bride, so everyone, I, I think, is now aware of and interested in who is this new, act, not new, but actress who's, who's blowing up. And on the other hand, you have said that you were maybe realizing that this was, that you didn't necessarily want to be the the America's sweetheart or whatever people were trying to make you at that moment. And in fact, you've said there's a turning point. That's the way you, uh, you had described it, where right around that time you turned down a cover of Vanity Fair and you've said like, you feel like there was sort of maybe almost repercussions that you're not doing what everybody expects you would want to do in that moment, which is, don't you want to be, you know, the new... I don't know who it would have been at that moment, Julia Roberts, whoever was the, the reigning uh, queen of, the, of Hollywood. So what for you was that moment like where you're so, everybody's sort of in, wanting to know you and maybe you're not necessarily wanting to be known? I don't think it was a... I, I know it wasn't. It was not a calculated decision to be exclusive or... It's just who I am. I just, I've always been uh, private. I don't want people that I don't know to think they know me. You know, it's just weird. Um, and when you're in your 20s, you know, and I had my first child at 24, I was a baby. I didn't know who I was. So I didn't want to go do Vanity Fair knowing that all she wanted to know was what color underwear does Sean Penn wear, you know? <laughs> not worth it um and truthfully after those kinds of things happened or like you said turning big movies down that you knew would be huge like a batman i just was like i'm not connected to it it's not grabbing me um and i'm able to pay my bills so i don't have to do it for money now do we do those movies for money as we have a line in america we say Oh, yeah, I ended up doing uh, Wonder Woman so I could heat the pool. <laughs> you know, <laughs> things like that. So there were those times where you had to go make a big blockbuster just to pay the bills. Um, but for the most part, I've had such a blessed career because I was able to just pick and choose what meant something to me, where I didn't feel like a fraud doing it. And it's been 40 years. So, pretty lucky. So... Uh, the first time that you were directed by Sean was The Crossing Guard, I believe, 1995. The love interest of this man who is 
played by David Morse, meant to, who's basically facing the um, consequences of having killed a young girl in a drunk driving accident. Um, being, you've said that being directed by Sean was a very positive thing. You really got, you guys worked well together. We did. That was that was the one place we really got along. <laughs> we should have just been working colleagues, you know. <laughs> great, great in the editing room together. Um, and just so we say, six years later was the pledge where this that's happens right. again, which happens is with again Jack, with Jack and, Nicholson. Yeah. yeah, he's a great director, Sean. Great. Not only a good actor, very good director. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I'm going to mention some of those great smaller ones and ask you to talk about them. But I think it's very another kind of big moment in your life that people may not necessarily know about because it's not uh, it's not something that necessarily was widely reported on. I don't think. But I mean, you for most of your career have not lived in LA, right? Um, that's not a coincidence. There was something I think around the time of Crossing Guard, which made you say, I want to get the hell out of here. And I think most people, if it happened to them, and this is on top of the fact that you probably were you know, dealing with a lot of weird paparazzi and stuff because of your relationship and all of that, um, but what was the final straw for you in Los Angeles? Um, it was uh, during a time when the hottest car that was being stolen in Los Angeles was uh, Land Cruisers, Toyota Land Cruisers, in the early 90s. And they were targeting anybody that was driving them, and they would follow you. So I put my two kids, one was not even one, and my daughter was like two and a half, So they're both in their little car seats in the back, and we're going to get, whatever, bathing suits for the summer. And get to the store, I'm out of the store, going to drive home, and I pull in the gate of the driveway that's very short, and it had an electric gate, but it could only fit one car. And right as the gate was closed, I get out of the car, I'm going to get my kids out of the car seat, and I see these two guys come in as the gate is just about to close. And they scoot in the driveway. And I'm held up at gunpoint. And he goes to take the keys to my car. And I said, Here, t- here's my bag. It's got cash in it. I had just gone to the bank and gotten like 2,000 cash because I was going to go buy an armoire the next day. And they didn't want the money. They wanted the car. And he started to push me out of the way to get in the car and drive away with my kids in the back seat. And it was, this is where you go, okay, there are angels. We have angels. Because my daughter had never been strong enough before to unhook the seatbelt of my son. And she suddenly had that will and that power and she unsnapped hers and she unsnapped his and both my little binkies just jumped in the driver's seat and I put one on one hip and one on the other and that car came out of my driveway and they got away and the cops when I called them they were like is it green does it have a yellow but I was like that's it do a u-turn and the guy runs it into a wall gets on foot SWAT teams above and they have heat detectors and he's hiding in a dumpster and my car is in a brick wall and it was the most traumatizing court day um I I couldn't even talk and he was going to juvenile hall he was a minor um and I I just said I'm a basket case I can't I was traumatized and I just said I want to get out of the city it's already a nightmare with the paparazzi popping out of your bushes every time you come and go, and they were everywhere. And we moved up to Northern California in this little town with a 1,000 people for 16 years and raised the kids, and it was the best thing we ever did. Wow. You have done so many things that people have loved you in, and yet I think there's, so there's an assumption that if somebody said, what are the projects that you're proudest of, I think 
people, their reflex would be, oh, it must be Princess Bride, must be Forrest Gump. Um, in 2019, you were asked, what, were the, what are the projects you're truly proud of? And you said three. Chronologically, the first was three years after Forrest Gump and 10 years after Princess Bride. And that was, so chronologically, the first is She's So Lovely, written by John, or, uh, written by John Cassavetes, who had died, directed by his son, Nick. You're playing a woman at two very different points in her life. Married, she's with one guy and is a certain way, and then years later, we see her in a very different way. Um, SAG nomination. Just a, it, it, What, though, for you makes that the first time you apparently were really, truly proud of your film work? I think because I was. That's true. Because it was the first time... I really got to act in a film where I wasn't typecast. And it's what you were talking about before. You do a movie, you're, you're performing in this, and they want to keep casting you as that same person every movie after every movie. And you want to break the cycle and go, I can actually do something else. I could be funnier. I, could, I can be a homeless person. I can... They wanted me to play always the very pained tortured woman when did that start from the beginning really that was yeah (laughs) it's like wow she's so unhappy and does it so well (laughs) and i never got cast or even asked to audition for anything other than that Mm -hmm. so she's so lovely was a break out of it and what was funny is you know sean's in it with me and i was trying to figure out who i was going to play and i was over at his mother's house loved her but boy was she a character um (laughs) And she would talk like that to me. Like, you would say, you know, Eileen, where did you get that beautiful painting? Didn't you buy that in, like, 1970? No, I didn't buy it in 79. It was 1982. (laughs) And she would talk to me like that all the time. And so that's who that character was. Uh, (laughs) I don't don't know if Sean knows that. (laughs) So that's number one of the three. Number two, first, just chronologically, I'll just mention, there were a couple of big studio movies in between with Message in a Bottle, with Unbreakable, but not necessarily, it doesn't feel like that's the kind of movie where you're most at home. However, White Oleander, 2002, this is the second one that you mentioned, a woman with a troubled past who tries to do the right thing, takes in a a child whose mother's off to jail and blows up in her face. Um, talk about why that's number two of the three. I mean, there was nothing more exciting than to be able to play um, a Bible-beating <laughs> Texan ex-junkie um, foster mother who literally is only taking children in for the money. <laughs> and... Um, you end up finding out that she's been secretly drinking a bottle of vodka every day, and then she just loses it and almost kills her foster child. Go strong. Just, you know, feel-good movie of the year. Right, right, right. So um, <clears throat> another one which I, I would put up there with, with these. This isn't one of your three, but because um, it's only 10 minutes of screen time in a movie with, I think, well, obviously, with nine different chapters is Nine Lives, Rodrigo Garcia. You're playing this woman who, in a supermarket, runs into a a past lover, and it rekindles feelings, and it's, um, you know, it was an interesting movie, different kind of movie, but 10 minutes, I think, of non, not even a cut, right? Um, You know who directed it? Yeah, Rodrigo, right, Garcia? Gabriel Garcia Marquez's son. Yeah. I mean, you grow up with that father, you're a storyteller. Um, And he directed, and it was nine chapters, nine different women's stories, and some of them connected, some didn't. And it was one shot, and it was a steady cam operator going backwards the whole time through a supermarket, and we're following him. Um, I think we did about 8,000 takes, because you only got one take, right? and it's beautifully done. It's beautifully written. It's so moving. All the chapters. Yeah. Yeah, that one, that, that's a really good one. 
2005's Empire Falls, limited series HBO, SAG nomination, and then number three of three of the ones you mentioned, um, The Private Lives of Pippa Lee, um, a woman, your Pippa, a woman married to a much older man who, actually, Alan just Arkin, who died, just died. Alan. Yeah. Um, the best. So she then, at a certain point, begins to re- contemplate her life's decisions, I think you could say. And runs off with Keanu Reeves. Yes. <laughs> yes. So uh, just again, because it's one of the three, what, make, what makes it to you um, one of the really special ones? It's such a quirky story, and Rebecca Miller's mind is, she's a genius in, in again, look at her father, um, Arthur Miller. She's just got a very special style and beautifully eccentric is what she is. And I feel like that's what Pippa Lee, nobody's seen this film. We don't need to talk about it. Anyway, love <laughs> the film. Well, go seek it love out. that yeah. director. She's, she's great. She directed her husband, Daniel Day-Lewis, in? Jack and... Jack and Frank, worth seeing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. To connect this to House of Cards... There's a few big projects there. Robert Redford with The Conspirator, um, Moneyball, opposite Brad Pitt, and then Girl with the Dragon Tattoo for Fincher. Not, he says himself, not everyone's cup of tea. He has a lot of, asks a lot of actors, some, dozens of takes sometimes, all of that. But you and he, I think, really um, something clicked, and then he came back to you two years later, so two or three years later. Um, can you explain how... House of Cards was presented to you as you know a possibility, and were you uh, did it require some salesmanship? <laughs> so, because I was on a soap opera years before, I had experienced that prison um, where you're contracted, you're exclusive, you can't go do anything else, right? And I was like, David, uh, I don't want to do TV series again. I really don't. He said, this is going to be different. We are going to launch this new medium of watching that is going to be the future. And it's called streaming. And I was like, um, is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> and he said, it's basically giving the viewer ownership and access to something that they own. You're buying a subscription to whatever network, every month you're paying that on your credit card, you should be able to have that content whenever and however much you want. And what they failed to do was redesign the contracts for royalties, which is why we're on strike Hmm. back home. But I just said, what can you promise me? Because I don't, how long do you think this show will go? And I don't want to just be a character where I'm arm candy on Francis Underwood and um, and he said, oh, no, no, no. This character is going to go places, <laughs> and she is going to do really dark things. And we are going to create it together as we make it. Because we never knew from season one to season two if we were going to get picked up for a season two. So we had two scripts going at the same time, always. This could be our end, or this could be chapter one, right? And um, so I was like, okay, we don't know if we're getting picked up. Where's she going if she does get picked up? And he said to me, I need her to be, she's a bust, like when you walk into a museum. She's quiet, she's stoic, very calculating, very venal, but she is so powerful with just her stare. And you don't need to move your head very much, you know, you just, (laughs) and I was like, that's all I needed. She's a bust with really great dresses and Louboutins. <laughs> yeah. And I, starting with season two, you were also directing, which is something I know you wanted to do for a long time and have now done as a feature film with Land. But let's just note, season two, you, had, you directed one, two in season three, four in season four, two in season five, and then the season six series finale. Um, was it what you hoped it would be to be directing? And also, like Land, I know Land was not intended to be this, but when you're also acting in the thing that you're directing, what is that like? 
Yeah, I mean, people are like, isn't it difficult? I'm like, no, it just takes more time. Yeah. Because when you've been acting this long, it's literally like turning the switch on in the room and the light comes on and then you turn it off. You're not torturing yourself and ripping your eyes out because you have to go cry in a scene. You're like, it's a job. And you flick it on, you flick it off. So that was not the difficulty, is jumping in front of the camera. It was racing the clock because I had to go watch playback. And so I'd do a series of takes instead of, you know, action, cut, action, cut. I'd say, just keep rolling, keep rolling. And I'll do four, four different takes all in one. And then I'd have to run back to the tent where the video and watch all my takes to see if it was good and grade myself and then go, shit, I didn't get it. I have to go do it again. Um, That was taking time out of my day as a director. And we have so many pages and scenes on a TV series to, to shoot per day. It's insane how fast you have to move. So that's the tricky part of being in it and directing it. Last two things, and I promise we're free. Um, obviously, with House of Cards, it ended unexpected in a different way than expected. You, however, were, I think, very um, instrumental in making sure it ended in a way that was pretty uh, humane for the many people who worked with you guys on this, which included, I, I saw one count, maybe 200 people that were directly employed plus thousands indirectly employed in Baltimore where where you guys worked that was not always I mean this could have gone a very different way we would have that would have just been it season five that's it um instead we get to see Claire become who she becomes we get to see the show these people got another year of work um can you just talk about because I think that's going to be looked back at as one of the you know that's a that's a you affected a lot of people's lives on that um by advocating for that. So just that moment, how you guys came out of it in, in, a, in a, you know, as well as could have been. It was a really tricky time, right? It was the beginning of hashtag Me Too movement and all that was happening. Um, and when the show shut down, that was the protocol that everyone was following. If any actor, director, producer, whoever was accused of blah, blah, blah. We're shutting the show down. We did. And me and Netflix and the showrunner, we were talking. We were like, let's just take this in for a week and let's, we're going to start deliberating. What do we do? Do we become a part of the fabric of Hollywood and d- destroy the show? And more importantly, put thousands of people out of work that they have expected to make money till the end of that season. We were just at the beginning of the season. And um, I just was like, that's not fair. You can't do that. These people have children. They have people that have children in college and tuition. and, And you're just ripping the rug out from under them because of one person? Let him go battle it out with whomever. And we're going to maintain our dignity and keep these people employed and keep the fans happy that we finished it off as planned. And by the way, that was always written in the Bible that Claire was going to be there anyway. I think at the end of season five, it was already in it was motion. Already yeah. yeah. Um, well, that was great. And then finally... And thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's been really interesting. What do you make of the fact that at this point, your two kids have followed you into this business? I think they're now around the age that you were when you were first, um, you know, coming to prominence. Um, you know, do you? I guess part B of that are they entering? Are they finding? Are they entering a business that's in a better place overall than it was when? when you came along? Without question. I mean, A, there's more content because you've got the TV medium, right? The series streaming. Um, 
which is such a beautiful thing that there's such an abundance of that for these young kids because there's nothing scarier than being in the film industry um, where we all started. You never knew when you were getting your next job. You never knew. There's zero security. So you would always have to, I'd have to go work in a clothing store or waitress or we all did that, waiting to see if that audition came through. So what's great about a series for my kids' generation who are millennials is there's going to be more opportunity to have security. Because bless film's heart, and I want to bring it back, and that's why I love these kind of festivals, because you're celebrating cinema. And I just, I know that people are out there just going, we, it got killed during COVID. It's just like took it away. And people are like, why am I going to go sit in a theater and pay 50 bucks for two seats? I can be at home and watch anything. So it's a complicated answer because it's great on one hand, the streaming, and it sucks also because it, it hurts film. And I hope there's a resurgence of film. And I think festivals like this are only encouraging of that. So thanks for being cinephile. All right. Well, Robin, can't thank you enough for doing this and uh, cannot wait to see what you do in the next 40 years of your career. It's always fun watching you do what you do so well. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in.